Hey everyone, it's Moshe Wanunu with a special edition of the Mo News Podcast. As we mark Pride Month and the anniversary of the Supreme Court's landmark decision legalizing same-sex marriage, we wanted to do a deep dive today into the history of the issue. It's pretty remarkable. In less than 25 years, public opinion and laws shifted at a speed this country has never seen, not for civil rights and not for women's rights. Journalist and author Sasha Eisenberg captures it all in his book, The Engagement, America's Quarter-Century Struggle Over Same-Sex Marriage. The book recently came out as paperback and was named a New York Times Notable Book of 2021. Sasha is a good friend, an incredible journalist and writer, and he's devoted the last decade of his life to this book, and it shows it's more than 900 pages long. We try to get to some of the highlights in our conversation today. We originally spoke last year when the book came out about all the twists and turns the same-sex marriage struggle took. That includes the debate within the LGBT community as to whether to even pursue marriage as a priority. You will love the original story from Hawaii in the early 1990s and how it even came to pass, and all the surprising turns and drama leading up to the 2015 Supreme Court decision. By the way, our conversation took place on Instagram Live, so forgive the audio at times. Sasha and I originally met covering the 2008 presidential campaign. At the time, I was a Fox News producer, and he was a Boston Globe reporter. Since then, he's reported for multiple media organizations and written multiple books, including The Sushi Economy and The Victory Lab. A reminder to follow this show on the podcast platform you're listening to us on and leave us a review. We cannot do this without your continued support. With that, I bring you my conversation with Sasha. So just want to start, Sasha, by asking your inspiration. Uh, you know, you mentioned you first thought about this book in 2011. History, especially when it comes to same-sex marriage, has uh, uh, quickly evolved over the course of the past decade. So want to talk about how this book came about, what inspired you, and, and why this topic? So um, in 2011, I was working on my last book, which was about the science of political campaigns. And I was having a lot of camp conversations with pollsters or people who dealt with public opinion in some form or another. And they'd often make a version of the same point to me, which is that they never seen opinion on a single issue move as quickly as it had on marriage. Um, and nobody had a really good explanation of what that was. And as a political reporter, um, we're led to believe that issues like this that are rooted in, in morality, tradition, uh, uh, religion, uh, are places where opinion is going to be really slow to move. And, um, that really struck me as, as interesting. And, and it was around that time when I just sort of became convinced, I mean, I'm 41 now, I was 31 at the time, that we're already starting to talk about this as the defining civil rights movement of our generation. And nobody had sort of written the whole, put the whole story together of how this happened. And while the history is still fresh, I wanted to, to, to try to get it um, on paper. To your point about how quickly public opinion moved, when it comes to race, race, ethnicity, gender, where do you see kind of the, the quickest adoption and acceptance of same-sex marriage? What was the biggest challenge and, and kind of where do we start and, and how did we get here? So one thing that's been true in the polling for this forever is that young people have always been more supportive than their older peers across racial, religious lines. So young African-Americans are more liberal on, on, on LGBT issues than older African-Americans. Young evangelicals are more liberal than older evangelicals. Uh, it's true basically across groups. And so one of the things that's happened here, some of it is opinion change, right? People who used to oppose gay marriage or supported civil unions as an alternative to gay marriage now support gay marriage. That's like the Barack Obama, Rob Portman story. People change their opinions. Some part of it is population change. I quote uh, Evan Wolfson, who was one of the 
the um, sort of top strategists of the gay marriage movement in the book. And he said, like, our big advantage is that our opponents are dying, which is a, you know, um, slightly cheeky way of just saying that, like, every time new people turned eight entered the electorate turned 18, the electorate was becoming more gay, more favorable to gay rights generally and LGBT rights generally. Um, and we've always known that the best predictor of whether somebody will, will be friendly to gay rights is, is whether they say that they know somebody who's gay or lesbian. And that number is, you know, basically 100% now. And so I think the population has, has moved along with those broader changes. Um, you know, when you talk, think about particular groups with African-Americans, Obama changing his, his mind, you saw a dramatic shift at that. Actually, period. let's uh, let, yeah, jump into that for a second, because I don't know that, any, that many people remember this, that Barack Obama's first term, he was against same-sex marriage until 2012. Yeah, that's... So uh, Obama's career is this great case study that I, I try to dig into in the book because he ends up being a, a really important political figure um, who, who drives this debate. But he also is a reflection of the way that the Democratic Party has changed on this. And, you know, for much of the 2000s, when he was running statewide in Illinois, which outside Chicago is quite a conservative uh, state, as you know, um, and, and running for president uh, in 2008, uh, his position was that he supported civil unions because he thought the gay and lesbian couples deserved all of the rights and benefits that that were available to straight couples who commit. But that he thought that, you know, as he said, re, you know, religion is between a man. In my view, marriage is between a man and the woman. God is in the mix and talked a lot about his Christian faith, uh, uh, justifying his opposition to, to um, changing the definition of marriage. And. Um, you know, what what happened in as I sort of try to reconstruct in the book is it became clear within the White House that he was not going to stick with that position all the way through his reelection campaign in 2020 in 2012. And the big challenge became, how do you, when you're president of the United States, announce that you've changed your position on 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 a question like that? And, and Joe Biden played a key role there, right? Yeah. So there's this sort of famous interview in in, in um, the spring of 2012 where Joe Biden goes on Meet the Press. He's asked, what do you think of gay marriage? He says, basically, I think that men marrying men, women marrying women should have all the same rights as, as opposite sex couples. The White House at that point had had a plan for Obama to go on The View a month later. Their research had showed that it was it would be better if he were in a conversation with women about this than, than with men. They thought that that would be the best place to have a kind of you know, he would talk about the role of his daughters in shaping his his opinion on this. And they had sort of planned out the calendar. Um, and Biden basically jumped the gun on the White House's plans to do this. And, you know, there were these sort of two or three excruciating days for the White House where they couldn't really answer, um, you know, whether or not the president and vice president disagreed on this. And and they basically said, you know, screw it. We're going to we're going to do this. And and Obama gave this, you know, famous interview to to Robin Roberts of ABC, um, uh, in which he he talked about, you know, what he called how he had evolved on on this issue, and um, and then we saw afterwards that that you know it it it, it helped change the politics within the Democratic Party. So, so. Yeah, that, I, it's among the themes I find fascinating in your book is just um, even going back to the '90s that you know President Bill Clinton signed the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage as between a man and a woman, which just goes to show you where the Democratic Party was in the 90s um, at that point. But I, and that's kind of where I want to start, or we can start just before then, because what I also find interesting is, you know, we have watched this become such a big issue over the course of the last couple of decades, but it was never inevitable that gay marriage, that same-sex marriage, was going to be so important to the movement. 
And so I'd love you to take us back to kind of, um, it, you know, kind of as quickly as you can, kind of that late 20th century history of, of how same-sex marriage became such a key issue. Yeah, so, you know, during the 19, uh, late 1970s and 1980s, the gay rights movement emerges as a real political force. And the areas where they're making progress are some small non-discrimination laws, you know, laws that make it illegal in a particular state to fire somebody because they're gay or lesbian, for example. Um, event, and, 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 and these were laws on the books back in the 70s and 80s. Well, so these were laws that, that, that gay rights activists fought for when they could get to a favorable jurisdiction, right? So Wisconsin was the first state in 1982 to pass a law that says, you know, you can't, you know, kick, you, you can't deny somebody the ability to rent an apartment because they're gay or lesbian. Basically treating sexual orientation the same way we treat race and gender and religion under civil rights law. Um, and this had to be done at the state level because the federal government still hasn't uh, passed laws to this effect. Um, and then, you know, things like including uh, uh, sexual orientation in hate crimes laws. So, it, you know, hate crimes statutes that existed, that race-based crimes, uh, religious-based crimes were prosecuted as hate crimes, but activists had to fight to get crimes against gays and lesbians uh, counted uh, the same way. Um, and then AIDS just takes over the movement entirely in the 1980s, and gay rights activists are, start having to fight overwhelmingly to get funding for AIDS research, to get you know drugs approved, get funding for AIDS treatment and research, to to make sure that AIDS isn't treated, people can't discriminate against people with AIDS in 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 things like housing, um, and nobody is. And then there's basic stuff about relationships, making sure that that you know uh, lesbian women can keep their own children if they uh, uh, the courts cannot deny women access to their own children because they're lesbians. That um, uh, you know, there's some basic protection for for couples who are uh, living together, but nobody's asking to marry, and so you know, nobody. There's not a single group in the gay rights movement that has marriage rights as a goal. There's not a single. There are plenty of people, you know, on the right, anti-gay activists. They're not trying to stop gay people from marrying because no gay people are out there trying because 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 the gay community at that point has higher priority items to deal with. They have, there are a few reasons. They're higher priority items. There are, and it's seen as strategically too much to ask for and you won't get it. And there's some smaller things we can get in, in between. There's a real principled opposition to it among some sort of feminist lesbians who think marriage is this old fashioned patriarchal institution. Why do we want to be part of it? We should be creating you know, family institutions in our own image, not trying to mimic what, you know, uh, the white picket fences of our parents in the suburbs. And um, and so what happens is I tell the story of this case that kind of comes out of nowhere in Hawaii, a local activist who. Right. So this is this is Honolulu, 1990. Exactly. So that's sort of where the story gets going, the core of the story. And there's this activist named Bill Woods, and he basically launches a PR stunt. He's in a, a, a the most petty conflict you can imagine for control of a, a, a pride planning committee in Honolulu. And he's trying to he basically spins off his own committee. He's having a parade. There are these lesbians that he's uh, uh, in competition with who are having a, a, a picnic and rally. And he wants to uh, upstage them. And among the things he does is he decides he's going to have this mass wedding ceremony on stage. And he basically misreads Hawaii law and thinks that um, these couples actually could be recognized as married by the state. He's not a lawyer. He, you know, he gets this wrong. 
Because he, he decides uh, marriage law doesn't actually define the gender of husband every, and wife. Every place, right. So like a lot of states have written their marriage codes in the 19th century. And sometimes they say a husband and a wife, but sometimes they say the husband, and it doesn't say you can't have two husbands. And so there have been times where folks uh, have tried to make cases saying, well, they don't specify that you can't have two husbands, so why can't you? Um, he thinks this is going to be e probably easier than it is. The local ACLU wants nothing to do with him. Um, they think it's, you know, a, good, a disaster is a case, and he's not a particularly good team player. And so as a stunt to basic, try to force the hand of the ACLU, he leads these three couples, two, uh, two female couples, one male couple, into the office of the state health department on December 17, 1990. They request marriage licenses. They're rejected. The state attorney general says no. The law pretty clearly was intended to mean that marriage is only between a man and a woman as it is everywhere on earth at that point. Um, and uh, the ACLU still doesn't want to take the case. And it gets handed to a local civil rights lawyer who sues Hawaii. And to everyone's surprise, um, the Hawaii Supreme Court two years later rules in favor of them. It becomes the first court on earth to rule that, that the fundamental right to marriage in the Constitution can extend to same-sex couples. And that changes the world we live in. Like all of a sudden, this becomes a real legal objective that... Uh, people think that they can actually mount cases for, and it becomes a real political issue. It's a thing that politicians all of a sudden have to have to interact with, both in Hawaii and then eventually on the mainland. So, I mean, after that stunt in Honolulu, how quickly does the larger LGD, LGBTQ community come around to, oh, this is an issue that we should get around? Because one of the themes you bring up is that it was actually the, the far right the uh, evangelist movement, and in fact, the Mormon church that um, then has an impact on the gay community. So, you know, what did, was it the right that kind of then inspired more folks in the um, in the LGBTQ community to take this on? Or what, did this stunt really, was this kind of a stunt to heard around the world and it really uh, launched this? No, I mean, the, the, the stunt itself and the case didn't, didn't do a lot to rally um, folks in the gay in the gay and lesbian community behind this. What really does happen is that the, the Mormon church becomes the first institution in the United States to really take seriously what's happening in Hawaii. And they basically conclude that we are now one judge in Hawaii away from couples marrying. In their case, they're worried about couples in Utah primarily, flying to Hawaii to get married, coming back to Utah saying, look, we're married. Now Utah state government, you have to treat us as married. Let us file taxes, whatever. Um, you know, going to their health club and saying we want to like share a gym membership, like you know, all these things. Why uh, the Mormon Church, by the way? What was what was going on there that they felt so? They've always been by this. They've always been, you know, fairly aggressively anti-gay. Is you know, going back into the seventies and eighties, they had very strong admonitions against homosexuality. But they've also had historical presence in Hawaii, going back to missionary work in the nineteenth century. They're big landowners there. There's a Brigham Young University campus in, in Oahu. So they're just like plugged into um, local politics and law in a way that that um, that some other deny. I mean, Hawaii is fascinating. It's, you know, it's the only state in the country. that's not majority Christian. Um, and so and there's uh, very little like evangelical Protestantism relative to other parts of the country. And so the 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 religious landscape is is different and the Mormons have a sort of big presence there. And so they decide that they're gonna try to 
build defenses on the mainland. They, they help pass a law in the Utah legislature. It makes clear that Utah does not have to recognize gay marriages from any other state. And, but then they set up this front group basically to try to uh, beat back marriage through the political process in Hawaii. And they partner with the, the local archdiocese in Honolulu. And one thing about the Mormons doing politics is they understand how the rest of the population, they have this real fear that they are, you know, not respected by the rest of the U.S. population. And they're very concerned with their public image. And so they were ready to spend aggressively and invest manpower in this issue. But they also knew that if it were seen as a Mormon campaign in Hawaii, it would not actually help them. And so the deal that basically the deal that they set up with the, 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 the Catholics, and we see a version of this again during the Prop 8 campaign in 2008, is that the Mormons say, we'll, we'll put up the money, we'll put up the expertise, we'll put up the manpower um, and have it have the Catholics sort of be the face of this this new new campaign there. And it helps to pass a constitutional amendment in Hawaii that, that bans same sex marriage and takes this issue out of the hands of the court. Um, and, and so the, the, the answer to your question is that the Defense of Marriage Act, which 1996, uh, you know, introduced by Republicans in Congress. As you so, so, so sorry. So you've been discussing yeah. stuff on the state level. Now we're all- back in Washington in 1996. Now it's gotten to the federal level. Yeah. So it takes a few years to bubble up. I mean, crazily, I think that the best answer for this is like Hawaii is far away. I mean, this is 1993. Like, you know, we had phones and fax machines and stuff. It wasn't that long ago. Um, but I suspect that if this case, if that, this opinion had been issued in any one of the lower 48 states, far more quickly, conservative activists on the mainland would have understood its significance and taking it seriously. So in, in uh, early 1996, Republicans in, in Congress introduced a bill that has basically two provisions. One, it says to states, you have the authority to disregard another state's gay marriages if you want to. And then the second thing, which ends up being more important, is it says under federal law, every place in the federal code that the word marriage is used, it means man and a woman. Every place the word uh, uh, spouse and wife and all, it defines all these terms to ensure that, you know, and there are thousands of places in the federal code that use these words. Right. So, you know, who can get married in a in a in a uh, military cemetery who can get. A, 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 pen, a post office pension, who can, you know, all these things, right? Tax code, obviously. Um, and it says that the federal government, which basically says, okay, states like Hawaii, Vermont, later Massachusetts, you can marry gay couples, but under federal law, they're going to be treated as unmarried. And that's the moment that this, you know, and Bill Clinton, as you say, signs that into law in, in late 1996. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, and I just want to talk about the numbers here. Yeah. So defensive, so you see the constitutional amendment in Hawaii in 1993. Now in 1996 in Washington, Republicans control Congress, but uh, in the U.S. House, 224 Republicans and 118 Democrats vote for the Defense of Marriage Act. Over in the Senate, 84 senators out of 100 vote for the Defense of Marriage Act, including a majority of Democratic senators. And that then goes to President Clinton's desk. Um, And while uh, he is criticizing as unnecessary, he signs it. Yeah. You know, there was the the internal, I I spent a lot of time trying to reconstruct the internal calculations of of the White House on this because, you know, Clinton has gotten a lot of flack over the years. He he effectively effectively apologized for having signed this 15 years later when he, um, 
and then came out as a supporter of same-sex marriage eventually. Um, but this is a lot of liberals, progressives hold this up as a big stain on on his record. Um, you know, one of the calculations of the White House was that there probably would be the votes to override a veto if he vetoed it. So that vetoing this bill, um, I think a lot of progressive activists would have been happy of him taking a stand against it. But it, everybody understood, and you, you mentioned those numbers, they, they demonstrate that um, this probably would have become law regardless. And he ends up signing it six weeks before the election in, in 1996. And it's very much seen as, um, you know, and Republicans are, are sort of uh, clear in their private communications that, that, that I was able to get through my research that, you know, part of their goal, um, you know, Newt Gingrich is a big driver of, of, of the timing of this in the House at some point. And some of their goal is to jam Clinton, that, that they think that a bill like this will either will force him to choose between what's obviously the more popular, you know, 27% of Americans support gay marriage at this point. So like, it's yeah. pretty different in a, in a general election context that, that, um, that the that the smart side to be on is 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 supporting the Defense of Marriage Act, but by 1996, gays and lesbians are significant enough force within the Democratic coalition, you know, as voters, as donors, as volunteers, that Republicans see the benefit of forcing Clinton to sort of choose between what'll be popular with the electorate and what um, his own party will 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 want from him. By the way, just kind of we're watching this evolution through the 90s. The following year, 1997, is the big year Ellen DeGeneres comes out. Um, and I'd love for you to kind of discuss a bit about the role of pop culture Hollywood in in the kind of acceptance of same-sex marriage and the, and the role it plays in the movement. Yeah, you know, so Ellen, Will and Grace, obviously people talk a lot about later. I mean, it's pretty clear in, in society that for many Americans, the first time that they encountered uh, a gay and lesbian couple, obviously, you know, those couples weren't married on the show because they weren't married, but like saw couples that were, you know, mutually dependent, uh, uh, committed couple, gay and lesbian couples was through pop culture. Um, and, you know, one thing though, that is that the sort of engine of social change is also happening because people can come out in their own communities. And, and I think that, you know, it ends up being, there's probably a cycle of, of, of culture making people feel feel in their own lives, feel comfortable coming out to their friends and family members and community. Um, that uh, driving some sense of acceptance. Uh, and, um, you know, one thing that's really important, I think, for some of these portrayals is that, is that they're, you know, Modern Family and other examples, that they're like fundamentally conservative, um, you know, in that, you know, and you think back about pop culture portrayals of like gays and lesbians and like Taxi or something going back to the, the 70s. And the gay character was an outsider. The gay character was, you know, and, and here you see, you know, these these big sitcom portrayals are like gays and lesbians in normalish households as, as normal as sitcom households are. And um, uh, I think to a lot of people, obviously, that was a just sort of a model of, of what, what, you know, that, that like gays and lesbians belong in the institution of marriage. It's not, it's not a weird fit. Right. I think that it was so difficult. I think it's really important as we think about this history, you know, before 2004, which is when gay and lesbian couples start legally marrying in Massachusetts for the first time. Like we didn't know it, like this, the challenge was, was as much a political, you know, fine. It was a, obviously a political challenge. There was a, like a moral issue here. A lot of it was just a matter of imagination. 
Like, it was crazy in the 90s to talk about two men getting married. Like, it just wasn't a thing anybody had ever visualized. It wasn't a thing most people had ever really been forced to think about. Um, and I think a lot of the difficulty get, you know, building support for this was it just seemed like this radical departure from what was familiar to us. And we just have a natural human instinct to, like, be suspicious of certain types of dramatic change, especially, you know, when it's something we haven't seen before. And, and the, and TV ends up being a way to sort of develop a sense of, of familiarity and comfort with something that nobody had really had many people had not encountered a version of in in their own lives. So, um, you know, we've, we've gone through the nineties here and we get to 2000 Vermont. And it seems like uh, Vermont comes up with a, uh, effectively a temporary solution. If marriage is illegal, they're coming up with the concept of civil unions. How, how does that happen and, and what impact does that have? Yeah, you know, it's, and it's not clear, I think, at the time how temporary it's going to be, right? So, so what happens, it's definitely a compromise, right? It's definitely a sort of half measure. And the, uh, you know, much like the Hawaii court had um, in 1993, in 1999, the Vermont Supreme Court rules that you can't discriminate in the awarding of equal benefits is the term that they have in their constitution uh, against gay couples um, who want uh, want to marry. But the court says um, the remedy does not have to be that, that you permit same-sex couples to marry um, and basically tells the legislature, you have six months to come up with a solution to this problem. And the solution they come up with is this new term, civil unions. And the idea is all of the rights and benefits of marriage, but we're not going to call it marriage. So we get rid of this kind of the, the sort of religious meaning of marriage and all of the sort of political difficulty that comes along with that. That passes. Um, it's still exceedingly content. I mean, it's, it's the lowest that the court would accept. It's pretty clear if the legislature hadn't done that, the court probably would have come back and ordered town clerks to start marrying gay couples. But it's still, you know, Howard Dean, who's the governor of Massachusetts, at the, uh, sorry, governor of New Hampshire, uh, Vermont. Vermont. Yeah, it's a New England. Governor yeah. Vermont at the time um, signs the bill into law, um, is a supporter of this compromise. And, you know, he's he's campaigning for reelection and he has to wear a bulletproof vest. Like it's this is Vermont, too. Right. So um, this is a really divisive issue. And there's an effort to to recall politicians who who voted for civil unions among anti-gay activists. And so this is sort of seen as this bittersweet victory for gay rights activists. On one hand, Vermont has now created the most extensive set of protections and recognition for gay and lesbian families in this hemisphere, um, far beyond what anybody in the United States has ever done at any level of government. On the other hand, you know, they've gotten all the way up to Vermont Supreme Court, and the Vermont Supreme Court still told the legislature, you still can treat these people differently, right? And, and you know, people called it a separate but equal compromise. And the, the big lesson, I think, for um, gay and lesbian activists uh, after Vermont and then after Hawaii and then especially Vermont was that they had to get better at the politics that like, okay, we can win these things in court. We have the arguments. We now have like a, you know, professional gay and lesbian lawyers um, who can mount these cases in state courts. But every time that this, if this gets turned over to the legislature or goes to the ballot, um, we stand to lose because we're not as good at the politics of this and the other side has some advantages. And so you get this real effort in the next few years to say, you know, we need to do the political work to kind of maintain our legal victories. 
And one thing you go into in the book is um, the amount of money uh, that the, the gay and lesbian community did have political donations to put forth in this fight. Um, how, how, how does that money get utilized? To what extent do they, they have the court fight, they have the lobbying situation, and then are they also attempting to use some of those funds to, in the court of public opinion? Yeah, so you know, one thing that happens over the course of the 2000s is that those different projects sort of become united under the same roof. And there's a group that's relaunched in 2009 called Freedom to Marry that kind of becomes the hub for this. And that's really unusual. You know, most, on most issues that anybody here follows, you know, gun control or climate change or immigration or whatever, the groups that do the lawsuits and the groups that do the lobbying and, and or campaign work are usually different. And sometimes they work together, but they exist sort of in different worlds. And, um, and you see sort of strategic failures as a result of that. They don't coordinate well. They have their own interests. Um, eventually, this sort of gets put under the same roof. There's an, by 2005, a, a handful of donors led by this guy, Tim Gill, who founded Quark, which was a big-time software publishing uh, software, uh, a desktop publishing software company, um, a handful of, of gay mega donors a couple of whom, like Gail, had made their money in tech, a few of whom had inherited it, decided like marriage is their top priority. That over all the other things we talked about before, non-discrimination, hate crimes, gays in the military, like they want to change the marriage laws. And they, in 2005, they basically give activists and lawyers leeway to create a national strategy with the idea that they'll back it. And, and, and those folks set a goal of a being able to go to the Supreme Court by 2025, so four years now in the future from where we are today, um, to win marriage rights. And then they sort of work backwards. What will we have need, what will we need to have done in all the states? Um, so a fight that would end up taking them 10 years, they thought would take 20 years. Exactly, yeah. And, and, and at the time, that was seen as like kind of optimistic, but like we're going to put this on paper because it'll rally people and, and give a goal. Um, but this was seen as, that was seen as a, you know, an ambitious goal. Like, um, uh, and, and so then they work backwards. It's like, okay, well, where do we need to be in all the different states? Where, where can we get there through the courts? Where can we get there through the political process? The, and then eventually the question becomes, the justices, even if the law's on our side is, you know, gay marriage, pro-gay marriage lawyers, the justices of the Supreme Court are not going to overturn a lot of state laws and force gay marriage on the states if they do not think this is popular. And by, you know, 2010, those activists are thinking not just where can we change the law in states, but we need to change public opinion so that, like, literally it's what they're thinking about. So that when Anthony Kennedy opens up the newspaper, like, over his cereal or whatever Supreme Court justices do, um, he'll see that polls show that this is popular and that the American people will accept a ruling and they will not see it as something that had been forced down from above, right? I mean, I think so much of the story that we learn about, about Brown v. Board of Education, about Roe v. Wade, is that you get this backlash because the Supreme Court is seen as doing something that um, is, is not broadly popular. And the public doesn't, public and politicians don't accept it. Um, and so these activists were really insistent on building the infrastructure, not just to win court cases, not just to lobby legislatures, not just to win it when it's on the ballot, but how can we change opinions? So that it basically just gets reflected in polling and media coverage. So by the time this is before the Supreme Court, they're like not worried that, um, that, the, that, that, that the American people are going to 
are going are, are gonna to see this as the court going overstepping its bounds. So we're in the 2000s. We begin 2000 with civil unions uh, get passed in Vermont in 2000. Massachusetts becomes the first state to legalize same-sex marriage in 2004. Um, you're just discussing this kind of movement in 2005 that says, hopefully we'll have gay marriage federally legal by 2025, right? Um, you're now in 2008 in California and you have Proposition 8. Um, and I know that you, you spend some time in the book on this. Voters pass it, court overturns it. What, what takes place there and what impact does that have? Yeah, so, so California is really remarkable for, for a, a few reasons. One, the, the California Supreme Court becomes the, the third, um, uh, uh, sorry, the, the second state court to uh, order marriage uh, for same-sex couples in, in the early summer of 2008. Rules under the California Constitution, same-sex couples have the right to marry. A month later, gay couples start marrying in California. Ultimately, 20,000 or so of them get married over the course of the year. In November, voters get the chance to vote on this, and they pass a constitutional amendment that bans same-sex marriage in the state. So the 20,000 people already got married or allowed to stay married, but they take away this right from anybody else. Like, kind of sucks if you decided to have, you know, we'll wait till next May to have our wedding and, you know. Um, and this is you know, this really proposition eight is significant, not just for the, you know, people in California who, who, you know, had their rights up for a vote, but in the broader political story of this ends up um, changing the way that the gay, the pro gay marriage side of this uh, approaches campaigns. And, and a lot of that's because in all the other States, there have been already like almost 30 States that had had this on the ballot um, by this point. And in almost every one of them, the gay rights side expected to lose. And when they lost, they had, you know, kind of good justifications or excuses for having done so, right? They were either in a conservative state, like, of course, we weren't going to win in Alabama. Um, or, you know, it was a presidential year, so turnout was going to be bad. Or it's a low turnout election, whatever. Calif California's a punch in the gut. California, you know, look, it's a, it's a liberal state. It's a state where the entire political leadership of the state opposes Prop 8, not just Democrats, but Arnold Schwarzenegger, who's a governor at the time, opposes Prop 8. It's on the same ballot where Barack Obama gets elected president by more than 20 points. Um, so it's not a conservative electorate. And basically, for the first time, gay rights, the gay rights side of this has more money than their opponents. They've spent $45 million. It's one of the most expensive uh, uh, uh political campaigns of any kind in American history at that point. And so they come out of this going like, we should not have lost this. Like we have none of the ready-made excuses. It's a state where, where there's a very well-established gay political apparatus going back decades. This is not like trying to win in Kentucky. And it forces them to revisit a lot of the assumptions about the ways that they have been running campaigns. And the money from this these big donors goes into you know, a kind of exhaustive research process to say, like, you know, how can we structure our campaigns better? And, and more importantly, we're clearly doing something wrong in terms of how we talk about marriage, because they've been polling well above 50 percent before, you know, throughout the year. And then, you know, as you get towards November, it, it fell to, to like 48 percent on the final ballot and they're losing support at the end. And then the, you know, the, the research question is like, why is that happening and how do we fix it? So we're in 08, Obama's president. He's not quite ready to support gay marriage. They've had the failure of Prop 8. We've now gotten to 2012. 
the president of the United States uh, becomes the first, Obama becomes the first president to publicly support same-sex marriage. Um, take, us, take us on the path to Oberfell in the, in the 2015 Supreme Court decision. Yeah, so, you know, the president changing his position on this has a few impacts. One, it, it does, you see an, an immediate impact in the African-American community. Support for same-sex marriage in, in Maryland, where there's a ballot measure uh, that fall, jumps 30 points. It goes from being, this is the most like, astonishing poll thing I've ever seen in my life. In, in uh, uh, April of, of 2012, something like 31 or 32 percent of African-Americans in Maryland support same-sex marriage. In, in May, it's like 62% support same-sex marriage. One thing has happened in that month. Barack Obama, the most prominent African-American in, in, in the country, has changed his view. And so I think that that's one thing that drives it. It also drives along within the party. It becomes harder and harder for Democrats, elected Democrats, Democratic candidates, not to support same-sex marriage. It sort of changes the, the center of gravity among Democrats. But the other big thing, and we don't, you know, I don't think we talk enough about the power that politicians have, executives have as the, uh, as like the legal officers, but he runs the Justice Department. And already by 2012, Obama has said uh, that he is not going to have his Justice Department defend the Defense of Marriage Act in, in court. So people started suing to challenge the constitutionality of, of DOMA. Right, because this is still from 1996, the law, the Defense of it's Marriage law, Act, right? between it, it, a man and a woman. Yeah. yeah. The thing about DOMA is, and this is one of Bill Clinton's justifications at the time for signing, is that nobody's hurt by this, right? So the thing about all those federal definitions we talked about is they only are really going to impact anybody when a couple can get married in a state and want to be recognized by the federal government. And since no state is marrying couples in 1996, nobody's actually hurt by this. Um, it's not until 2004 when couples can marry in Massachusetts that all of a sudden people are harmed by this. And it is like, you know, so so a lawyer in Massachusetts, Mary Bonato, ends up collecting stories of plaintiffs who are hurt. And it's like, literally, I couldn't change the name in my passport to my spouse's name because even though Massachusetts treats us as married, when we go to the State Department to update our passport, they don't see us as married, right? Um, and then, you know, we're paying more in taxes because we don't get this deduction, stuff like that. Um, and... In 2009, she sues on behalf of these Massachusetts couple and sues the federal government on the basis that DOMA is discriminatory. And in, in uh, 2011, Obama's Justice Department, Eric Holder's then the Attorney General, announces that they're not going to defend this law anymore, which is really unusual. Like, the default assumption is that the, the Justice Department defends the existing laws, regardless of the politics of, of, of the administration. And they decide that they actually cannot, under their reading of civil rights law, defend this any longer. Um, what happens after Obama announces, so in, it, it's in the spring of 2012 that Obama announces his support. And that December, the Supreme Court says that it'll hear two cases on related to gay marriage. One is a challenge to Prop 8 in California. And the other one is this, this uh, challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act. And now it's not just... So Republicans in Congress end up having to defend this law before the Supreme Court because the Justice Department won't. But now that the, the Justice Department of the United States sends in the Solicitor General before the Supreme Court to argue uh, on the pro-gay marriage side of these cases. And that's a huge shift. You know, we saw a version of this in the 1950s. It was a big deal when... Um, the Eisenhower administration was willing to send a federal lawyer in and say, we think that state bans on, on um, 
on uh, sorry, state segregate you know, school segregation uh, laws by the states are unconstitutional. And there's an expectation that courts are ambivalent about getting involved in political issues. But if you have the executive branch of the United States saying our reading of the law is that, you know, this stuff shouldn't stand, that that's really influential. And so the Ob- Obama ends up, you know, the, the news he made fundamentally was that he as an individual and a political leader changed his views. But probably the bigger impact he had was having using government lawyers and the Justice Department to take stands on these big constitutional questions, um, many of them without the same amount of po- the view is not doing a segment on like what's the U.S. Solicitor General arguing today in, in, in appeals court. But that that probably had a more significant impact on on the arc of these of these. So so you have the, these two cases that worked their way through the court systems between 2012 and 2015, the opposition to Prop 8, um, and then um, the uh, oh. the challenge yeah. to DOMA. Yeah. And so they both come up at the same time in, in, in early 2013, and the court rules, strikes down DOMA, says it's unconstitutional. So the only reason that Congress passed this was, like paraphrasing slightly here, because they hated gay people. Like that there's, it was animated by anti-gay animus, that is not a an acceptable justification for passing a, a law um, and says that 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 federal definition thing we talked about was unconstitutional. And so after that, the Obama Justice Department decides that they're going, you know, this is actually a big job, figuring out all these places in federal law. Where the the, the government now needs to treat all couples equally, just as a bureaucratic matter, like figuring out how you change the. State Department passport forms, like that stuff's tough. Um, everything from the State Department, the IRS to everything. Yeah, so you know, it's yeah. just like, just think about every time you interact with government, where it says on a form like put your spouse's name or something, and then it, that has some impact on, you know, like what uh, what you pay, what you are entitled to, whatever. Um, so that so all of that so that changes, like that that the government says, okay, we're going to find everywhere possible. Still, there are only 13 or so, 11, 13 selling states in the country where same-sex couples can marry at this point. So mm-hmm. uh, more or less only in the most liberal states in the country with a couple of exceptions that gay couples are marrying and, and benefit from this change. Um, the other case, the Prop A case, was, was went in as the big one. And the, the you know what the lawyers uh, were trying to do was to get the Supreme Court to rule that Proposition 8 the constitutional ban in California was unconstitutional under the federal constitution, that, that it was discriminatory to gays and lesbians and that, that that can't stand. And what happens is the Supreme Court basically punts on that question and on a small technical matter decides to um, uh, overturn Prop 8, but in a way that just affects California. So it's a huge day for gay and lesbian couples in California who can start getting married immediately. Um, but it was not the big nationwide opinion that um, that the lawyers had been going for in that case. And what changes is, and, and immediately that's sort of seen as a, I wouldn't say it's a letdown for, for gay marriage activists, but it is kind of a split decision for them. Uh, you know, they, they win on the DOMA case. On the bigger case, they, they don't get their way. They also don't lose, which is good. And then they win in California. But what happens, it takes a few months for this to happen. But in December, a uh, federal just judge in Utah 
dealing with a lawsuit there um, that had been filed earlier that year rules uh, somebody's challenging Utah state ban, which had passed in 2004. And the judge rules, says like, hey, um, basically like I'm reading this opinion about the Defense of Marriage Act. And here Justice Kennedy says uh, DOMA was signed into law only because of anti-gay animus. And that's uh, an inappropriate use of state power. Um, why wouldn't that same logic apply to Utah's amendment? It looks unconstitutional to me too. And that was a more expansive reading of that DOMA opinion than anybody had noticed after the fact. And it basically sets up a lot of federal and state judges through 2014 saying, yeah, like the reasoning about this Defensive Marriage Act also applies to the state ban in Pennsylvania, the state ban in, in Idaho. And 2014, these dominoes just start to fall really quickly. And I remember I was writing this book in like, you know, there were weeks where two or three states would change their laws based on a court. This report. is this is why it took. This is why the book took ten years. Yeah, kept, I mean, that <laughs> the reality on the ground kept yeah. changing. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and so that makes it basically inevitable that, um, not inevitable, but but the Supreme Court ends up having to take this case when the circuit, the two circuits of the federal court system disagree on this. And then the Supreme Court has to rule on that big question that they had basically avoided dealing with in the California case. So this is Obergefell. So this is, yeah. So, so this is a big case, 2015. It's a culmination of like several lower court cases from Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee. Yeah. And so, you know, in all of these, every other circuit that had ruled on this had ruled that these state bans are unconstitutional. And, um, uh, a, judge based in Cincinnati uh, heard uh, challenges to all four of those states' laws and ruled differently, ruled that, that that was a perfectly reasonable thing for, you know, voters in all those states to pass these things with majorities, and that, you know, this is something that should be fought out in the political sphere, and that, um, you know, voters had the right to set the laws of their state to, to recognize marriage, and, um, uh and what that did was, and so he upheld those state bans. Um, and, you know, it's what they call a circuit split. The only time, if, if two circuits disagree directly on an issue like that, the Supreme Court is the only way to basically break the tie. And um, that comes before the Supreme Court in the spring of, of 2015. And by that point, it is almost, this is this, this very weird moment where you have this, you know, landmark, civil rights decision and nobody questions the kind of historical import of this decision but also nobody is surprised by it either. and part of that was because the court had been every time uh in the other circuits that the uh, anti-gay marriage site had lost they had appealed to the supreme court and the supreme court said no we don't want to hear this and in many of those instances couples started to get married started to marry in these states and it just seemed really illogical that the court after letting couples get married for a year when it would not take a case would be in the position of now coming back and saying, no, actually like um, we, we disagree with what that circuit did because it would have just created a mess in all these places. And, and I think there's like one thing worth understanding about the Supreme court, like regardless of the ideological bent, justices do not want to be seen as a source of like chaos and instability in, in American life. And it just seemed at the point that if they had ruled in favor of these gay marriage bans, they would have created a whole lot of 
mess. Though the ruling was a 5-4 decision. It was a 5-4 decision. And so Anthony Kennedy, who was you know, appointed by a Republican, a conservative justice in many ways, ends up, um, he writes that opinion. He had written the DOMA opinion in the Windsor case. He had written an opinion in 2003 that struck down bans on, on uh, gay sex. You know, up until 2003, states could um, ban private sodomy. Uh, 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 sex between two adults. Um, and, uh, I mean, really remarkable, 2003. You know, gay sex was criminalized in a lot of states. Um, and then another ruling in 1996 before then, and he has become the kind of, like, you know, great champion of, of gay constitutional rights through these four decisions, um, uh, all of which were released on June 26th of their, of their year, right at the end of the Supreme Court term, that, um, you know, basically we went in in, in 20 years from the Supreme Court saying that states have every right to throw, to throw people in jail for having private, private gay sex to saying that, that gay couples have a right to marry everyone in the country. I mean, it's an incredible evolution. You talk about the Honolulu stunt of 1990 to the Supreme Court decision of 2015 is a 25-year time period. Yeah, and, um, you know, and, and obviously that was like long and grinding and uncertain and emotionally challenging for people who are in the middle of this both like, you know, some of the, the plaintiffs and lawyers and politicians I talk about, and also just real people who are experiencing this. But by the standards of civil rights movements in the U.S., that's incredibly short. And, you know, um, compared to the movements for racial equality, for, for, for women to get property rights and then the vote, um, that's just an extraordinarily compressed period of time and, and makes us, you know, such a remarkable story because... You know, there were very few people who lived through the whole arc of, you know, from post-slavery to, to, to the Civil Rights Act. I mean, you've had to have been like 120 years old. Like, you know, anybody who's not nine, I don't know how many nine-year-olds you have watching uh, <laughs> your, your Instagram feed. But like, basically, we've, you know, most, most American adults have lived through a large chunk of this history themselves. Um, and it, and that's just a, you know, a, a, a real different dynamic than a lot of the sort of social movements or civil rights movements we we read about in, 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 in other histories. So I have a question here from Magic Mike 41, and this is interesting, especially in light of what we're seeing with the voting rights right now. He asked, what, does he, uh, what, what do you think, Sasha, of the corporation saying they support Pride Month, but then donate tons of money to anti-gay politicians? Um, and the larger role, I guess, you know, to parlay that beyond that question, the, you know, the, the role of the private sector, big business, Fortune 500 companies played in, in, in this movement. Yeah. And so, you know, they were, I think the business world was a driver of this for a variety of, of, of reasons. Um, and, you know, I think it's like, let's not be in the least bit naive about what corporations do. They do what's in their self-interest and the interest of their shareholders. And, um, uh, I don't think we should necessarily maybe it would be nice if corporations were like ideologically coherent and consistent, but I, I think we'd be crazy to expect it. Um, you know, what, what I think, I, I think a few things happen. One, you have like some very well-placed leadership in companies who, you know, um, were pro-gay from their personal experience or their personal orientation, had a gay family member and that drove, uh, uh, you know, led big companies to be often, more sympathetic to uh, uh, gay rights than than the broader public was at, at, at times. 
but this is i think broadly this has turned into like a competitiveness issue for companies um and they see this through the lens of that their ability to attract talent will be tied to how accepting they are that they're seen to be on a lot of these um identity-based issues and you know not marriage in particular, but there were, you know, anti-LGBT bills of various kinds in, in Indiana when Mike Pence was governor, in, later in Arkansas, later in North Carolina. Um, uh, and the, you know, obviously fighting back were the local gay rights groups and, and, and lefty groups, but with them were like Eli Lilly and Bank of America and Walmart. And, you know, basically, I, you know, I think that the, the I don't think it's even that cynical a reading of this is like Walmart is saying, you know, we're trying to hire, you know, hundreds or thousands of, of engineers and analysts and accountants and whatever to come marketing experts to move to Bentonville, Arkansas from San Francisco or New York or LA or wherever. Like it's probably hard enough already for, to get these people to move to Bentonville, Arkansas or Indianapolis or Charlotte, North Carolina without them worrying that their identity or their relationships are, are disrespected under state law. And so, you know, in Arkansas, it's Walmart lobbyists who go to the legislature and say, basically, you guys are crazy. Like, we're at a huge, we're already at a huge competitiveness disadvantage against big coastal states. And this is going to set us back further. And so I think that you get in, you know, I think a lot of, you know, I think a lot, I, I, I I as amused by anybody as seeing like crazy corporate logos turn into rainbows for, for, for pride. And like the, you know, the Halliburton yeah. in the, in yeah, the, the, uh, the BMW logos, all rainbows, except for BMW Saudi Arabia right now. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So it's like, you know, um, uh, I think that stuff's comical, but it, I think it fundamentally comes from a place of, like they're concerned about their workforce, their present workforce and their future workforce. And, um, you know, the, I, I think that we're basically at a point where corporations, often these aren't terribly difficult choices for them to support these measures, to throw a bunch of money at sponsoring a gay pride parade for, you know, Goldman Sachs is like pennies. Um, but they're, you know, the, the other part of, of Mike's question is like, you know, they're still going to give money to senators who like, you know, have important positions on financial services committees because, they have as much sort of, you know, cynical need to make sure that tax rates and regulation and whatever is where they need it to be. And so they're trying to balance, um, uh, you know, and, and, and part of what I story I tell in the book is I write about a few like hedge fund guys in New York who dramatically changed the financial terrain of this issue in 2010. Um, you know, Paul Singer, who's a big conservative donor, ends up being, the, you know, the most significant driver of this. And, you know, his son comes out as gay. And, like, that's just, you know, for a lot of people, politicians, donors, that that's just like a game changer in terms of how they see this issue. And so, you know, he's basically conservative on every issue on Earth, except for LGBT issues, because it's personal for him. And, you know, he went to a bunch of his Wall Street buddies and got them to pony up a lot of money. And, and you know, it both change the sort of financial balance of this fight in New York, but also they were able to go to Republican elected officials and say, we have your back if you vote our way on this, because you're, because you know, you're one of us, we're one of you. Um, and, and I think that that is one of the big, you know, that's it. Corporate America is a big part of the pro LGBT coalition and in, in, in most political fights now as, as a result of things like that. 
looking ahead, one of the things you say in your postscript is, you know, the gay marriage uh, fight left some of the LGBT community behind because gay marriage wasn't an issue. As briefly as possible, kind of what's next and, and who got left behind? You know, so trans folks, you know, and like in one, one big thing to recognize that there are a lot of trans people who were able to marry the person they love even when gay marriage was illegal. There are also a lot of bisexuals who were able to marry the person they loved even when gay marriage was illegal. Um, but the way that Kennedy wrote that Obergefell decision was he wrote it as a, as a marriage case, not as an LGBT rights case. And as a result, um, it, it was really moving and influential around marriage, but it did absolutely nothing for the broader LGBT rights movement. And, that's, and then as a result, conservatives went to fight transgender people on issues because they had lost public opinion on marriage, but they still thought that they represented a majority on, on trans issues. And I think that's why there's so much activity around those things now. Has, have the people who were fighting the, the marriage fight, have they been, are they now behind the transgender? But a lot, trying to fight some of these states? Literally, yeah. they said we lost here and we were going to go basically play on a different turf where public opinion looks a lot more like it did on marriage 20 years ago. Sasha, it's been a pleasure. I wish you luck with the book. Thanks, Mo. This um, was fun. Our thanks again to Sasha Eisenberg for his incredible insight and perspective there. You can go purchase his book wherever you get your books. Again, it's called The Engagement. And you can read more about our conversation in the Mo News newsletter Doctor. over hey, at monews.bulletin.com and follow at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H for all your news needs on Instagram. Would love if you could follow the show on your podcast app of choice and leave us a review. You can also email us at podcast at mo.news. And of course, stay tuned for a new edition of The Rundown with me and Jill Wagner on Monday.